The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Rate shock as mortgages surge their highest level in years, even as prices hit all-time highs. So what's going to happen to housing? He's not passing. Free speech advocate Elon Musk getting active at Twitter and joining the board are big changes coming at the heavily criticized company. Caught a 30,000-foot bidding war as JetBlue throws a wrench into the frontier and Spirit Airlines deal. In D.C., the White House and its European allies prepping a new wave of sanctions against Russia over atrocities in Ukraine. And big oil in the hot seat as industry leaders get set to get grilled on higher gasoline prices. Happy Wednesday. It's all happening on this April 6th. This is... Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for being with us. All right, let's kick off the hour with a check on the markets and your money. And right now, stock futures, they are down across the board. Dow futures down about three-tenths of one percent, under 100 points, but still down. Tech, the big loser this morning. Tech futures off with the NASDAQ, about eight-tenths of one percent. All this coming off a rough day for the Wall Street that saw all the major averages close down with the Nasdaq ending down more than 2%, basically giving back all the big gains it made on Monday. Up 2% Monday, down 2% yesterday. It was likely because of higher oil prices, but there were also hawkish comments from a pair of Federal Reserve officials that sent some shockwaves through the markets, including ones from Leo Brainerd, where she called for a, quote, speedy reduction in the balance sheet, end quote. That spooked a lot of investors because that balance sheet, eight trillion bucks, is a big time issue in how they wind it down. Speaking of debt, let's get a check on the bond market. The yield of the 10-year is now back above that of the two-year. So do we call that inverting the inversion? I don't know. But those interest rates are bouncing back and forth higher than each other, sort of each other day. The 10-year is at 2.6%. In the oil market, crude oil, the one you're going to see on your screen, is up a little bit, but it's actually off about a buck where it was this time yesterday. It was at 104 yesterday, so it was up a little more, came down at the close. So it's technically higher than the close, but is a dollar barrel less than it was 24 hours ago. There you go. And in crypto, we are seeing Bitcoin, Ether, both just down a bit. In fact, Bitcoin down at about 45300 bucks. All right, let's get a check down your global markets as Asia mostly fell, again, likely on higher oil prices and some parts of Europe off more than 1%. Juliana Tattlebaum's got your trade and your top stories in our London newsroom. Juliana, good morning. 
Brian, good morning. Well, there seem to be a few factors at play for the Asian trade. Overnight, as you pointed out, we did see some pretty sizable losses for the most part. China markets reopening after uh, a holiday-long weekend. The Hang Seng over in Hong Kong dropping about 1.9%. Shanghai Composite holding up a little bit better. But in terms of the drivers, we got some data out of China overnight. The Kaishin Services PMI saw its sharpest decline since the start of the pandemic. Kaishin's Composite PMI, which includes both manufacturing and services, also fell into contraction, hit by rising COVID numbers and the government's zero tolerance policy, which has restricted movement and hurt demand. So clearly, the COVID situation in China remains front of mind for investors. As for European markets, we're also seeing red on the board following that downbeat session on Wall Street. The CAC 40 over in France down about 1%. The German market pulling back uh, just over 1%. A little bit more resilience in the Swiss market, which tends to be more defensive, down about two-tenths of a percent. Um, Concerns around the impact of further sanctions also front of mind for investors. And we'll just give you a quick look at sectors to see what the breakdown looks like. Every sector is trading in the red. Media had been trading in positive territory for most of the morning, but even that now, um, just a touch below the flat line. Autos, travel and leisure are the worst performers. So clearly investors are taking some risk off the table this morning. Brian? Yeah, a whole bunch of red on that big screen, Juliana. Thank you very much. All right, let's get right now to a developing business story, which has to do with a big new bidder in the fight for one of America's leading discount airlines. Savannah now is here now with that. Savannah, good morning. Brian, good morning. That's right. So JetBlue is throwing a wrench into Spirit's planned merger with Frontier Airways. Late yesterday, making a $3.6 billion all-cash bid for Spirit Airlines. The $33 per share offer represents a roughly 40% premium to Frontier's $23 a share offer and for Spirit and a 50% premium on Spirit's closing price Monday. The bid from JetBlue comes less than two months after Spirit and Frontier had agreed to merge into a discount airline giant, which would have made it the country's fifth largest airline. Spirit shares surged on the rumors of the bid in late trading yesterday. It says its board is evaluating the new proposal and will, quote, pursue the course of action it determines to be in the best interest of the company and its shareholders. For its part, Frontier is defending its offer, saying, quote, unlike the compelling Spirit-Frontier combination, an acquisition of Spirit by JetBlue, a high fare carrier, would lead to more expensive travel for consumers, adding it is surprising that JetBlue would consider such a merger at this time, given that the Department of Justice is currently suing to block their pending alliance with American Airlines. And Brian JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes will be on discussing all of this in a first on CNBC interview today at 10 a.m. Eastern. Big interview there. We'll talk more about it a bit later on in the show. Silvana, we'll see you as well. Thank you very much. All right, folks, we are just getting started. We have got a lot to do on this Wednesday. And when we come back, SpaceX CEO, Tesla founder, the boring company head, now Twitter board member, what Elon Musk's new role could mean for the stock and a potential fight with the SEC. Plus, the rate shock hitting the housing market as mortgage rates hit 5%. Diana Olick breaks it all down. We've got a very busy hour still ahead. Grab another cup of coffee. We're glad you're up with us. And we'll see you in two minutes. Have you-
Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. Let's get a check down on your markets after yesterday's big declines from big tech. And it looks like some of that selling may follow through this morning. We're seeing NASDAQ futures off about seven-tenths of one percent. I mean, think about this. We gained about two percent on the NASDAQ on Monday. Everything looked just peachy. Then we lost more than that yesterday. We're down again. What's changed in 24 hours? Not a lot. Some comments from the Fed. Oil prices ticked back up as well. But otherwise, everything was kind of the same. It is a fairly nervous market. We'll talk more about that with Jeff Kilberg a bit later on in the show. S&P laggards, you got, look at that, Bristol, Myers, Alaska Air, Ingersoll, Rand. So no clear trend on exactly what didn't work yesterday. We're seeing pretty much any kind of group Tesla, Alaska Air, nothing in common whatsoever. But they all fell on the NASDAQ, which was the biggest decliner of the day, down more than 2%. NASDAQ stocks, the majority of them lost. In fact, the ones that gained the most Monday were some of the China-based Internet stocks, the Pinduo duos of the world, where they were also some of the bigger losers yesterday. Bought one day, sold the next. That's Wall Street for you. All right, making headlines this morning, Twitter confirming it has been testing an edit button feature on its platform. The company making the revelation after Elon Musk disclosed a stake in the company and put out a poll on the matter, which arguably was likely purposefully misspelled to prove his point about the edit button. Twitter has apparently been working on the feature since last year. HSBC officially diving in to the metaverse. According to reports, the bank launching a fund for investment opportunities in the digital ecosystem, that for private banking clients in Hong Kong and Singapore. And Volkswagen pulling the plug on a number of its models in Europe to concentrate on its more profitable premium models. The automaker CFO telling the Financial Times it will cut the range of at least 100 gas and diesel vehicles by 60% production, rather, over the next eight years. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome or welcome back. Let's get a check down some of this morning's top headlines outside of the world of money and business, including some deadly weather ripping across parts of America. Here with that and more is NBC's Francis Rivera in New York. Francis, good morning. 
Brian, good morning to you. Strong storms are whipping across the southeast this morning. A third week of severe weather battered the region with tornadoes, hail, and flooding. At least 38 tornadoes were reported. This one caught on camera in South Carolina and reports that two people were killed. Officials say a woman was killed in Georgia after her mobile home was destroyed, and a Texas man died when a tree toppled onto his home. The White House is putting yet another freeze on federal student loan payments. It is the sixth time since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. The pause will last through the end of August, according to the AP, and the extension would bring some relief to more than 43 million Americans who owe a total of $1.6 trillion in student debt collectively. And just over a year after a horrific car crash, Tiger Woods is back on the PGA Tour. The golf icon says he plans to play in this week's Masters, set to tee off just after 10.30 a.m. Eastern tomorrow. And he says he is up for the challenge and that he doesn't show up to an event unless he thinks he can win it, Brian. So we're talking about Tiger standards here. But after everything he's been through, regardless of how he plays, I'm sure every single step throughout those 18 holes will come with a whole different perspective. It's good to have him back. I'm sure the happiest folks are him and his family. But the next happiest, Francis, have got to be CBS. Because <laughs> methinks that TV ratings may have just jumped 30 percent. Uh, quite a bit. Yeah, if not, I have if to not, agree with that. If not more than that, I mm-hmm. probably played low on that one. I'll be All right. Good luck to Tiger. They kick off for a yeah, tee off tomorrow. Francis, thank you very much. Sure All right, let's get now back to the markets and your money. And your next guest says there are three key drivers for stocks right now. Inflation, the Fed, and volatility. So let's get a good game plan for you and welcome in Cliff Corso, President and Chief Investment Officer at Advisors Asset Management. Joining us on the Newsline, Cliff, good morning. Uh, inflation is bad. It's probably going to get worse, at least over the next couple of months. What does it mean for stocks? Well, I think uh, uh, that leads to that second driver you were talking about, Brian, which is it's going to continue to drive uh, Fed that's going to be falling further behind the curve and therefore has to uh, move rates up further and faster. And and really, that's what we're seeing. Uh, 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 Fed, the Governor Brainerd yesterday kind of set off a little bit of a a panic uh, or a fear in the market about the balance sheet, and the market hasn't focused on that. But those are the kind of tools which are blunt that the Fed's going to – try to push. And uh, what that means for the markets are continued volatility around the uncertainty to higher rates and uh, lower income cash flow stocks, uh, growth type stocks, probably continue to get discounted uh, as rates uh, rise. Is there any part of the stock market that looks inexpensive to you? Not just fairly valued, Cliff, but maybe inexpensive, given that multiples have now come down. Uh, yeah, we think uh, uh, the, the whole value sector of the market, um, you know, areas uh, like financials and select financials, uh, insurance in particular, I mean, PE ratios uh, you know, are very, you know, very attractive. Uh, the fundamentals uh, for uh, value-oriented companies and quality companies are solid, uh, and they're also very defensive. Uh, in a playbook that maybe we have to go back to, uh, you know, uh, normal inflation, not 70s, but when, uh, periods where inflation is rising, what has worked. And that's generally been income-oriented and value, you know, value sectors of the market. Yeah, and what do you make of, of the, the current outlook? I mean, we've had guests on have said, we just don't know what's going to happen. Normally it's pretty clear, but with the war in Ukraine, with rates where they are, with the Fed talking about a speedy reduction of its balance sheet, I'm not sure the visibility to the, the summer or fall cliff is that great. What do you think? 
I, I agree with your, uh, your last statement, Brian. I think it's going to be cloudy because we haven't even seen inflation uh, uh, come off the peak yet. It's still peaking. And, uh, and again, we see the Fed that, you know, even though they've begun to move, uh, rate moves move with a one-year lag. So even if they go to 225 on rates, we're, we're at the end of the year, higher than the, their existing forecast, now, that just averages a Fed funds rate of 1.25. That's that's way behind the curve. So I think we'll be sitting here in the fall looking to try to find that clarity, which we might not be seeing. So I think it, really the playbook is take a you know, step back, look at an environment where you know rates uh, continue to rise, inflation is sticky, and uh, maybe we're, you know, in, in essence, aging in that cycle. And I think we need to expect shorter cycles as, as we move forward in time. All right, Cliff Corso joining us on CBC Newsline. Cliff, thank you very much. Appreciate inflation. A big story. Cliff, thank you. All right, let's turn now to a gentleman you may have heard of by the name of Elon Musk. Now admitting his big investment in Twitter is not passive after all. Did you expect anything else? Musk filing with the SEC yesterday, shifting his stake from passive to active. That filing also details the deal that he reached to be added to Twitter's board Twitter saying in exchange, Musk agreed not to push a stake to 15% or more. That new filing also shows he began buying Twitter stock at the end of January and purchased more in every available trading session through April 1st. Let's talk more about what this may mean for Twitter with Richard Kramer, managing partner and senior analyst at Erite Research. Richard, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Elon Musk, I presume, and I'm going to wildly speculate here, you'll forgive me, is not joining Twitter's board because he thinks it's a nice little company. Elon Musk is an outspoken advocate for free speech. Uh, he is likely going to be very critical of some of the policies that Twitter has enacted regarding their own self-editing of certain news stories. Uh, this seems like it could be headed for some boardroom fights, but what do I know? What do you think? So, <clears throat> hi, Brian. I think that the important thing is to separate what has been terrible corporate governance at Twitter. I mean, this is a stock that until a few days ago was trading below its 2013 IPO price and clearly had a number of technology initiatives that didn't pan out. And then Elon Musk's involvement. And the simple question that no one seems to be asking is, what does he know about running a digital advertising business? And it's a nice in principle to say that Twitter ought to be more of a free speech platform. But ultimately, that has consequences for all the advertisers that might not want their messages to sit next to some of the freer speech that um, that Elon Musk would like to see on the platform. What does it all mean for the stock, though, Richard? I guess that fight, I think you're exactly right on what's going to happen regarding how they moderate content, how they decide. They're literally deciding in some cases what they feel is news. And you don't even know at the company who's making that call. But that's a separate issue for investors. What does this mean for the equity? So I think it's not a separate issue for investors, and that's a mistake that everybody makes, Brian, and I want okay. to correct that because content moderation is the new tax on social media. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg does not have 30,000 people working in content moderation because he thinks it's, it's a nice thing to do. It's an obligation. And that's a tax that Twitter has been a serial tax evader of for a very long time. That's why you see so much invective and, and hate speech and whatnot still pervasive on Twitter. 
And so ultimately, uh, the for investors, they need to contend with two issues. One is that there's going to be additional costs to manage the content moderation if you make it a speech free for all. And second, you're going to lose certain categories of advertisers that just don't want their messages appearing next to yeah. the freer speech that you've looked to snuff out of Twitter. Well, and, and well, by but by free, I think I, I think I see your point, Richard. By free, you mean disgusting, right? I mean, sort of the hate. Uh, I mean, the abuse literally targeted, especially to a lot of female journalists just getting brutalized. Oh. It feels like Twitter is a mini bike that goes to listen in the media. We love Twitter. It's sort of our daily pipeline. For most of America, it's probably, honestly, somewhat worthless, right? I mean, people go on, they have nine followers. They don't understand how it works. Somebody cusses them out. They leave. How do they fix the company then? Well, this is the thing. Now, to say you've got an edit button is not the simple fix. If I could say, gee, Brian is a fink. And no. you'd say, hey, hang on a second. That's not very nice. And, and then I'd go back and say, well, what I really said was Brian is a lovely guy. And it's just going to be a full employment program for the Wayback Machine to figure out who posted what on Twitter and whether it was real or whether they edited it in, in, the, in, in a later stage. I mean, it's just going to be increasing levels of chaos in a company which I think it's fair to say has been the poster child for sort of chaos monkeys, as you remember that famous Silicon Valley book. Um, it's a company with yep. a lot of yep. failed, failed fits and starts. It's a company with a very, if you, if you look back, um, you're looking back at a five-year chart, you can see all the volatility in the stock price. And yes, it had a run-up with everything else in tech, but then literally halved. So as investors, they ought to stand back and look at this and say, yeah. this stock threatens to Should become must, more, hey, of a, Richard, more of a circus, sound, more of a circus than ever. We got to go. I'm sorry, but I, I want to ask you this. Should Musk just buy it and take it private? I mean, Twitter does not seem like it should be. A, it's a great device for the media and certain industries, but it doesn't seem like a viable long-term public company in many ways to the points you just made. Yeah. And I think if someone is going to buy Twitter and take it private, it has to be someone who just doesn't care about the economics of the business and doesn't mind the fact that it's not going to make, uh, they're ever going to make their, a return on the investment that they'll make in it. Almost like a, a public utility in some specific ways. Yep. Richard, a great discussion. I'd love to do more. Come back soon because this conversation, I think, is incredibly important to conversations around yeah. America. Richard, thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. By the way, if, you, if think is the worst word I hear today, I'll take it. All right, coming up, the rate shock hits home, literally, and the toll 5% mortgages may take on record high home prices. And your morning RBI on why one key part of the global supply chain has gone, quote, insane. It's inside info you're not going to hear anywhere else. We've got it coming up. Fed and rate fears is higher mortgage costs and balance sheet comments from two top Fed heads at futures lower. Big oil on the hot seat as six energy execs take to Capitol Hill to get grill over gas prices. But could the strategy do more harm than good? An M&A turbulence for Spirit Airlines planned to combine with Frontier as JetBlue swoops in with a big new offer. It is April 6th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Hi, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and good Wednesday morning. It's about 5.30. Thanks for joining us here, and here's how the markets and your money look right now. On this Wednesday morning, and we are seeing red on the screen in stock futures, 
Markets, of course, all down across the board yesterday, and we're going to see that selling, it looks like anyway. Follow through today, Dow futures off 112, NASDAQ futures off a little more on a percentage basis. What could be big oil fireworks on Capitol Hill today? Because the House Energy and Commerce Committee is holding a hearing called Gouged at the Gas Station, Big Oil and America's Pain at the Pump. Scheduled to be questioned and no doubt grilled by some members of the hearing are CEOs and executives from ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, Shell, Pioneer Natural Resources, and Devon Energy. Congressional Democrats want to know why gasoline prices have stayed high even as oil prices have fluctuated. It is a question no doubt many Americans are asking. But is this the right group of executives to answer it? Let's welcome in Ann Bradbury, CEO of the American Exploration and Production Council. And it's good to have you on the program. I understand the American public's anger, good morning, at high gas prices. And these congressional Democrats are making positive points about buybacks and record high profits. So how do you think these oil companies are going to respond to what is no doubt going to be a very public grilling? That's exactly right. And, you know, I think the title of the hearing is a really good indicator about whether or not this is going to be actually a conversation about solutions to lower energy prices or more of an opportunity to score political points. And I think it's pretty clearly the latter. Um, I do think you'll hear from a lot of our companies that uh, it is the shale revolution that has caused gas prices to be historically low and stable over the last decade and why Americans enjoy lower energy prices than much of the rest of the world. And that's because of abundant domestic supply. That's the key to lower energy prices. And that's what we should be talking about. Well, I think I think based on some of the prepared remarks from some of these CEOs and they they are going to say that. In fact, we got some prepared comments from Mike Worth, the CEO of Chevron, And one of the things Mike Worth is going to say is this. He's going to say, quote, I have seen statements in the press suggesting that Chevron and other oil companies are responsible for the increase in fuel prices. I want to be absolutely clear. We do not control the market price of crude oil or natural gas or refined products like gasoline and diesel. And we have no tolerance for price gouging. I'm not defending Chevron, but I will say is, as we have showed our viewers on this program, and as somebody whose father owned a gas station when I was a child in Los Angeles, uh, A lot of the companies being called here, Devon and Pioneer, they don't make gasoline. So I'm I'm just curious where the questioning is going to go. So that's exactly right. Uh, Oil and gas are global commodities. Prices are set by the global marketplace. And what you're seeing is a structural imbalance in supply and demand. Um, and, 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 And so if we want to actually reduce energy prices for Americans, we need to be talking about ways to get more domestic supply into the energy markets. Um, I think what you're going to see is a lot of false narratives put forward today about, quote unquote, price gouging, price fixing um, and 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 other uh, red herrings that really are beside the point and will absolutely do more harm than good and will likely drive up the cost of energy for Americans. Well, let's be clear. There are no doubt some corner gas station owners that are gouging. I mean, they, they lose a lot of money in certain times. They're going to make it when they can. A lot of these gas stations are owned by, you know, one family. And there will be those who take advantage. I would imagine the refiners are also probably making a pretty good amount of money based on some of the so-called crack spreads, et cetera. I don't want to get too technical on it. And uh, but we the, the the point is the American energy supply chain is extremely 
complicated, from pulling oil out of the ground to selling it and putting it in the pump. I'm not sure everybody on Capitol Hill, no offense to them, understands how the whole thing works. Is there anything that these executives can do today that would even sort of assuage some of their harshest critics in that hearing? So that's exactly right, Brian. The, the, the price of gasoline is largely set by the price of crude. And so what we need to do is to bring about more abundant supply. And the way to do that are things like this administration sending a clear signal that American-made energy is an important part of our economic security and our national security. They can restart federal leasing to bring about more production yep. on federal lands. They can unlock permits on federal lands to increase the production on federal lands. We can build new infrastructure. Many areas of this country are very infrastructure constrained and production is dampened when you can't get yeah. oil and natural gas to market. So we need more additional, we, we need additional infrastructure. So there absolutely are things and policies that this administration and Congress can be pursuing that would alleviate these high energy prices. But unfortunately, what we're seeing from most Democrats on Capitol Hill uh, is more about political posturing and would do more harm than good. I'm surprised that you would suggest political posturing at a very public hearing over something like gasoline prices. And please Disregard my snark at 540 in the morning. And Bradbury, we do appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Could be a hot day in D.C. By the way, according to data from Bracewell, in the first 14 months of the Obama administration, there was 47 lease sales. So far, there's been one, and it was blocked by federal litigation. All right, back now to this morning's top corporate story in JetBlue, throwing a bit of a wrench into Spirit's planned merger with Frontier Airlines. Late yesterday, making a $3.6 billion all-cash bid to buy Spirit. The $33 per share offer represents a roughly 40% premium to Frontier's $23 a share offer for Spirit and a 50% premium on Spirit's closing price on Monday. The bid from JetBlue comes less than two months after Spirit and Frontier had agreed to merge to become a discount airline giant, which would have made it the country's fifth biggest airline. Joining us now is David Banmiller, president of Falcon Group and a former airline CEO. David, good to have you back on. I'm just going to ask a direct question to start. Is Spirit Airlines worth that much money? You couldn't give away an airline a year ago. Well, this reminds me of the 80s when everybody was dancing and there's fewer chairs with all the mergers. I was involved in one with American. And uh, this doesn't surprise me, but the big stuff, is Spirit worth it alone? Maybe not. But when you combine you have to think of the generative savings of the combination because you don't need two CFOs, CEOs, et cetera, the purchasing power with airplanes. And when you combine, that's when the value is, not necessarily alone. I'm a little bit surprised that JetBlue came out of the woodwork on this one because, you know, the DOJ has been pushing back on their relationship with American. And they are not quite like Frontier and Spirit. They all have the same fleets. They all have Alpha. So those two issues are pretty well resolved. Uh, Frontier and Spirit have sort of compatible routes in that Frontier is stronger in the West, Spirit's stronger yeah. in the East. JetBlue is, in my personal opinion, a bit of an anomaly. They're a bit higher cost, and I think the DOJ is going to have some issues before it's said and done. You think JetBlue is just playing offense by playing defense? In other words, maybe they, they, they kind of want Spirit, but they're probably thinking it's better if we just don't let Frontier have them rather than it being a net additive to themselves. Well, 
Think about Wall Street. If you drive up the price and the other guy has to pay more, then he's got to pay more. So I guess you could look at it that way. I'm not sure they do. You know, Bill Frankie has been involved in so many of these carriers over the years, back from the days of, of Frontier. And he's sort of an architect of a lot of this, including overseas uh, with Ryanair. I do think there's a possibility that what the heck, let's try to drive up the price. But I really do believe at the end of the day, the board wants to be a major player. And the best way to do that is combining all three. If I had posters in my office, David, of every failed airline over the last 40 years, I'm not sure I'd have enough wall space. Anything from People's Express to Western to Eastern to Piedmont to Braniff. I mean, good grief. Does one plus one equal two and a half? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I didn't know it was that many. I definitely don't have the wall space. Does one plus one equal two and a half in airlines? I mean, is it about gate costs, jet fuel savings, C, all the above? What do they get when they merge? Well, well, jet fuel savings is they're all the same fleet type and they have a lot of DOs. So I would put that off to the side. But in terms of real estate at airports, a lot of strength. Gate availability, a lot of strength. Purchasing power with Airbus, a lot of strength and with vendors and suppliers. And the combination, theoretically, they're saying could save up to a billion dollars. And that is true. When you merge, there are significant savings and purchasing power. Add to that, uh, not just the fleet, but the routes. Very, very important that you look at the route overlap versus not overlap. Spirit and Frontier don't really overlap a lot. JetBlue is a bit of a different story because they're east and west. And that is a complication. The DOJ will be involved in this one, I can assure you. Yeah, me thinks that you are correct on that. When it comes to airlines and consumer travel, they tend to be very active. We'll see how this plays out. David Van Miller, thank you very much. Good By to the see way, you, speaking of JetBlue, uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Do not miss Phil Lebeau's first on CNBC interview with the CEO of JetBlue. No doubt Phil Lebeau is going to ask Robin Hayes, why do you want Spirit Airlines? Interview you can't miss 10 a.m. Eastern time today. All right, on deck. Will 5% mortgages crush the housing market and bring down record prices? Or will even higher rents keep housing afloat? Diana Olick is up next with that. All right, welcome back. Well, if inflation was not bad enough already, get ready. Because the cost of buying a home becoming more expensive. The 30-year mortgage just hit 5% again. Really the first time... In more than 10 years, that has happened with the exception of an extremely brief period of 2018. That is up 50% from one year ago. As analyst Gordon Johnson of GLJ Research points out, that could double monthly payments for some new home buyers. Diana Olick joining us now to break it all down. Diana, I was watching CNBC yesterday. I saw you jump in. You broke the news. And I mean, years ago, 5% would not have seemed like a lot of money. But it certainly does now, especially with record high prices. What are you hearing about the impact of this? Yeah, I mean, especially, as you say, because of those record high prices. We got a report yesterday from CoreLogic, which showed home prices up 20 percent year over year in February. And the gains just keep getting bigger. You would think that these higher mortgage rates that we've seen over the last three months would throw some cold water on prices. But prices generally lag sales. And while sales have been coming down slightly, there's still just crazy demand in the housing market. But at some point, Brian, you've got to believe that affordability is going to kick in, right? 
I guess. I mean, so, okay, I'm going to show a chart, and it's basically 30-year rates versus the average price of a home sold in America. You know this chart by the back of your hand, Diana, but for our viewers, you could see the it, it pretty is clearly inverse. As rates go up, prices go down and vice versa because people don't buy homes based on the price. They buy homes based on the monthly cost. But with rents so high, Diana, I wonder, does it hold up? Because people have to live somewhere. Exactly. I mean, if you're paying so much for rent already, then you say, look, maybe I could even pay slightly less. And there are definitely certain markets. Remember, as I always say, all real estate is local. And in a lot of markets, it is still cheaper to buy than it is to rent. That dynamic is changing pretty quickly. But remember, you know, and I want to say about these rates, some people, you know, I got all the rate people calling me yesterday saying, well, it hit 5% Uh-oh. in 2018 for more than a week, or it was, you know, in it was really like 2011 that it was there, just touched it. But we really haven't seen rates sustained over 5% since 2009. And I'm not going to tell you, when I bought my first apartment, In a different century, my rate was around 9%. But again, it's that home price and it's that monthly payment. But when you look at rents, which continue to rise, especially for those single-family homes that people still want, millennials want them, they want to move out to the burbs, they want the good school districts, rents for single-family homes are so high right now that it's pushing people toward buying because they don't want to keep throwing away money on rent. They want to gain some equity and home equity off the charts. But one thing I want to note, Brian, is that it's not just the monthly payments. It's that a lot of people now are not actually qualifying for a mortgage anymore because we're not back in 2005, 2006 when anyone could get a mortgage, no matter what your credit rate was and no matter what your debt-to-income ratio was. I have a little cartoon on my desk that has a dog holding up a paw print from 2005 saying, I'm ready for my loan. Um, There are rules now. You cannot get a loan (laughs) if you don't have that debt-to-income ratio, correct? And the higher rates get the harder it is for a lot of people to get a loan. We all remember the ninja loans, no income, no job, no nothing, but you still got the debt. Those were the bad old days. I mean, Diana, I guess here's the thing. I mean, we've got inflation out of control on so many things, the grocery store, the gas pump, whatever. You've got nerves over Putin's war in Ukraine. It just seems like the housing market has completely changed in a couple of months. Oh, and by the way, probably like you, some of Once in a while, I poke around real estate locally just to see what's what and what my house may be worth. The only things that are on the market seem to be like the Amityville Horror House or a home over a sinkhole. (laughs) I mean, there's also a supply issue. No, there's a huge supply issue, a terrible supply issue, especially for existing homes. What we are seeing, though, is supply of newly built homes start to rise. And that's an interesting point to watch, because if you see that supply and builders have been charging a lot, their prices are way up because of land, labor, material costs, all that stuff for builders. But if builder prices start to come down a little bit, you might start to see easing in the housing market. And again, we have seen pending home sales, that is signed contracts on existing homes, come down for the last four months. So that's a sign that you are seeing some weakening in the market. And that, again, could pull prices back a little bit. But again, rates seem to have nowhere to go but up. And we're already at 5%, like you said, the highest in 10 years, minus that one week in whatever, 2018. Diana Olick, an important story there. It depends on which one you're looking at. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah, and and what your credit rating is. I mean, there's all these variables, but on a macro level, point well taken. A lot of our viewers may not care about the stock market, but they probably care about the value of their house. Diana, thank you very much. All right, coming up next, speaking of high prices, 
Your morning RBI and something totally nuts happening in one key area of global business. Plus, Jeff Kilberg is here on how he saw this market comeback coming and where he thinks we're going from here. And during April, we're celebrating Financial Literacy Month, featuring some of our CNBC friends and contributors. Here's Nelson Raniere with what he learned after coming to this country from Cuba. I arrived along with my family when I was three and a half years old from Cuba, and we didn't have anything but $50 and a lot of dreams. But what we learned was that we live in a country that for those who are willing to learn how the financial system works, educate themselves, and work hard, there are pathways to increasing personal wealth. It's been an exciting journey, and I encourage all Americans to take advantage of a lot of the free resources to educate themselves more on personal finance. Time now for your morning RBI. And today, let's talk about great big old ships, super tankers, oil tankers, and just how much it costs to run one of these beasts. Because this is random and definitely interesting. According to a shipbroker I spoke with yesterday, the cost to iron oil tanker has, quote, gone nuts. And he says that right now we are seeing the highest level of tanker costs ever. I confirmed that with another analyst. Check this out. According to my broker source, on some routes, ship owners are charging up to 80 thousand dollars per day. Compare that to last year, which he says was closer to 15,000 per day on those same routes. Put another way, on some global tanker routes, the cost to ship oil and other liquids has gone up more than 400 percent. And he said these costs have to continue for at least a month. He adds this is not simply because of the war or the SPR release. Yes, that plays a role particularly with maybe some panic buying of types of diesel fuel or other additives that Russia makes, but global supply and demand is much more important right now. Why do people in the industry think this? Because the biggest demand jumps are on the longer shipping routes, where the ships are chartered for 30 to 50 days versus what would normally be a 20 to 30 day shorter haul. So it's longer, more global routes. Now, tanker costs are just one part of the global energy supply chain, but a very important one. And it may signal that diesel fuel costs, already sky high, are about to go even higher. It is this type of complex story that's going to be frustrating for some members of Congress, some of whom are going to be grilling six U.S. oil CEOs on Capitol Hill today. Could be very good news, though, for investors in these shipping companies. Because outside of paying more for fuel costs, those big spike in rates might go right to their bottom lines. We don't know, but only time will tell. But it's a heck of a largely untold story. And just so... If you're interested, some tanker stocks you might want to keep an eye on include names like Euronav, Scorpio, and Frontline. We certainly will be. Time stamp it. Random, but interesting. All right, back now to the markets and your money facing some new frights for more Fed officials on the central bank's inflation strategies. Bring in our friend Jeff Kilberg, Sanctuary Wealth CIO and CNBC contributor. And as we've said, Jeff, this is what it sounds like when doves cry. Because the most dovish member of the Fed, I think, Lael Brainerd, has now turned into a hawk. I mean, that pretty much completes it. How hawkish and aggressive with rates do you think the Fed is going to be? I think this is Fed capitulation at its best, Sully. And to see Brainerd really come out, with all due respect to her and her position as first lieutenant of Fed Chairman Powell, where was she when he was talking about inflation being transitory back in 2021? Where was she when we were buying tens of billions of dollars just in Q1 of this year? So I think it's a little bit too late. I think it's actually a little bit reckless to talk about this 
after a 100 basis point move in the 10-year note. We started the 10-year note off this year at 1.53. Now we're at 2.6. So maybe this is the top tick for inflation because of the doves crying or panicking. But I think this is an absolute capitulation. And I think we'll actually have to see how she talks about running off that balance sheet. We knew that was coming. Sully, their balance sheet is borderline gross. The amount of liquidity in the market is gross. So if they pull back at $100 billion a month, they're still going to be at $8 trillion when we ring that New Year bell for 2023. So a lot of rhetoric, a lot of jawboning. Marcus did not like it, no doubt about it. And I stay up at night when I talk about the 10-year note being above 2.5%. So I think it's short-lived, but this is absolutely bothersome to every home buyer, to everybody who has anything tied to some form of a loan. Yep. The Fed balance sheet is not quite, but... You know, what is it? It's it's not quite double the 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 annual budget of the federal government of the United States, and it's overseen by a handful of unelected and largely semi-anonymous officials. A little bit terrifying, actually, if you think about it. Jeff, you probably just heard our segment with Diana Olick on rates. I mean, a lot of people may not own stocks, but they probably own a house, right? I mean, what's are you worried about the macro economy from a home and an inflation perspective? Well, I think it's different this time, Sully. You've never seen U.S. households in such a better position. Owning stocks or not, we have seen debt to income at the lowest it's been in quite some time. So I really do believe that we're in a pretty good position from household balance sheets. So, yes, it is alarming, but I think it's okay if we have a little bit of a cool-off. But I don't think the 10-year note, the long end of the curve, I don't think the Fed can allow this long end of the curve to stay this elevator go any higher. I know there's a lot of newly anointed bond experts rolling out every day or every hour, but I think the fact that the Fed is going to be in a bit of a position here, but the only thing they have going on their side, and this is kind of a lonely view, Sully, yeah. is that I think inflation actually begins to abate. We really are seeing the global economy. I know Asia is still in some lockdowns, but domestically, we really are seeing the reopening. I'm seeing people travel, seeing people spend on services. Very different and in contrast for now, the amount for of now, spent on goods. For now, and to your point, everybody was a, a financial crisis expert in 2009. I lived through that one as well, Jeff. Uh, what's going to happen with the equity markets? You heard our RBI the other day. Stocks can and do go up when the yield curve inverts. It doesn't kill the market. The economy and the stock market are different things. It doesn't. And historically speaking, we see some form of recession 20 months subsequent to that inversion. But it's different this time. We've never seen this balance sheet. We talked about the massive amount of assets they have on that balance sheet. So I think what we've seen in the S&P 500, and we actually see what's going on with the VIX, we've seen nerves calm down because we are range bound. We saw a sensational snapback rally at the end of the month of March. We saw some resistance at 46.50. But I think what's important, Sully, is having diversification in your portfolio. Here at Sanctuary Wealth, we talk about diversification. Look at an ETF, USMV. That's the minimum vol ETF, which owns about 150 stocks. These are kind of boring stocks that we don't talk enough about, but think about Kroger, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi, Johnson & Johnson, even Berkshire Hathaway, which is having a heck of a year. Owning some of these names in a diversified manner is going to help mitigate risk to the downside, but I envision earnings season to kind of give us a lift, but this can be a bumpy road today and for the rest of the week as we digest some of these really hawkish words. USNV. I think the theme for this year, Jeff, is boring is the new sexy. I personally am counting on it. Jeff Kilburn. Bring sexy back, son. Thank That's you. you, baby. Oh, we are. I'm, I'm Justin Timberlake of Morning Business News Anchors, minus the talent. Well, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange, everybody. I'm off the next couple of mornings. Squawk Fox is pick up the coverage next. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.